Meningitis is one of the most feared manifestations of infectious disease for the medical community. Yet in spite of this fact, there are very few educational or advocacy-based resources dedicated to increasing public and professional awareness for meningococcal disease and updated prevention methods. My guest today leads one of those few organizations, and our intent will be to give meningitis the attention it truly deserves. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me is Lynn Bozoff. She's co-founder and president of the National Meningitis Association, which is an organization fully dedicated to meningitis education and prevention. Lynn, great to have you with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. To start, Lynn, I was moved by reading about the origins of the National Meningitis Association. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. In 1998, my 20-year-old son, Evan, a college junior, pre-med, honor student, pitcher on his college baseball team, called with what he thought was a migraine. When the symptoms weren't alleviating after a few hours, we told him to go to the emergency room. We figured they'll give him something for the nausea, the vomiting, the headaches. We talked to the ER doctors, and they said, oh, your son has a little virus. He'll be, he'll be fine. We just will keep him overnight. We don't want to send him back to his dorm. The next morning, I called the hospital and said, can I speak to Evan? And the nurse came back and said, he feels too sick to talk. And I said, well, put the phone up to his ear. And I said, Evan, do you want Mom and Daddy to pick you up for the weekend? It was spring break, and since he was on the baseball team, he didn't get the spring break. He didn't have a chance to come home. So in the next 30 minutes, we got a call from the hospital saying, your son has a 5% chance of survival. He has bacterial meningitis. So we went from the night before, he has a little virus, to now he probably won't survive. So over 26 days, my son was in three hospitals. He had both arms and legs amputated because of the gangrene caused by the disease. He had 10 hours of grand mal seizures. He lost kidney function, liver function. Eventually, the brain swelling from the seizures herniated his brain stem. And we had to make a decision no one should ever have to make, and that's to have your child taken off life support. My husband, my younger son, and I were all in the room when he was disconnected, when Evan flatlined, and when they took him away in a body bag. And then we found out that there was a vaccine that could have saved his life if we'd known about it. Well, at that point, what do you do? I mean, it's, it's too late for you. My husband and I said we couldn't let this happen to other families. Evan had every vaccine that was recommended that he have before he started college. Meningitis wasn't one of them. So that's how I got involved in advocating for meningococcal disease awareness. And over the next few years, I met other families with similar stories. Three of us lost children. Two had their children survive, but as quad amputees. And we thought we would have more of an impact if we formed a national organization. And we did that in 2002. Well, then there's obviously no way to truly express uh, the sympathies that come with a story like this. It's a nightmare scenario for anyone, both those, the parents who have to experience this, and, of course, with the medical community, those who are involved, who have to see 
that kind of rapid change in health and the death of, of somebody that they take care of. I truly admire the work that you've done, the way that you and your other co-founders, the families that you've worked with, have tried to turn this into a way to prevent this type of outcome for others. What has the experience been in the last 10-plus years for the NMA? We've seen great success in disease awareness, but there is still a long way to go. When my son got sick, there were no recommendations at all for vaccination. And now the CDC has definite recommendations. There are two different types of vaccinations that are needed to be completely protected. The first is a conjugate vaccine, which covers four of the five main zero groups. And that vaccine is routinely recommended for all 11, 12-year-olds with a booster at age 16. That fifth zero group, there were no vaccines for that until about a year and a half ago. That's zero group B. And the CDC issued a category B recommendation for the zero group B. That's not a stronger recommendation as it is for the other four zero groups. It means that you talk to your healthcare provider about the zero group B vaccine and, and decide if it's right for you. To me, there really is no decision there, it should be right for you because zero group B accounts for about a third of the cases of meningococcal disease right now. So if a parent wants their child to be fully protected, they need to have both vaccines. And the problem with this category B recommendation is it makes it very confusing for healthcare providers. I mean, to me, as a parent and as an advocate, it's sort of a wishy-washy recommendation. I think it puts an unfair burden both on parents and healthcare providers. So I'm hoping that in the next year or so that the CDC will reconsider this recommendation as there is more data available on the new vaccine. So Lynn, from your perspective, what was the rationale explained to you as to why this was made into a recommendation of a Category B the way I understand it is that the incidence of meningococcal disease is at an all-time low right now. But since medical experts can't really attribute that just to the vaccine, they don't really know why the incidence has gone down. And even serogroup B incidence has gone down, and there has been no vaccine for that. So to me, if the incidence goes down, it can go back up. And that, plus the expense of the vaccine, the relatively few number of cases, and since the FDA did an expedited review of this vaccine, I think the CDC was waiting for more data to be available, which I know that data is coming in now, so I'm really hoping this will be readdressed. Because even, even if there's only 50 or 100 cases, you know, if it's your child and you find out after your child dies that there's a vaccine that could have saved his or her life, how are you going to feel? You're going to say, why wasn't I told about this? Why didn't I have the information to make an, an informed decision? When my son died, there were no vaccines recommended. 
yet the military had been routinely vaccinating recruits for 20 years. Because if you think of a recruit in a barrack, in a military barrack, that's pretty much the same situation as being in a college dorm. You've got crowded living conditions. People are maybe sharing drinks, whatever. You know, you just got that opportunity for the exchange of respiratory secretions, which is how the disease is spread. And were there concerns of adverse events stemming secondarily from the vaccination itself, which at the time compelled a sort of a hold on recommendations, advisements to move forward with this for the general public? I think that was one of the concerns. They wanted more information on the uh, the safety profile. I mean, the vaccine is safe. Otherwise, it would not have been approved by the FDA. Although, from what I understand, and I'm not a medical expert, there were more minor side effects to this vaccine than the conjugate vaccine, especially for infants. You know, the bottom line is if the FDA didn't feel it was safe, it would not have been licensed. So let's fast forward then to today, where the recommendation being sort of lowered to Category Bs likens a little bit to having a red alert for the past 15 years move down to a yellow alert, some sort of reliance on herd immunity now and waiting for the data to catch up and see what the risk profile is nationally. Strikes me as a little bit counterintuitive, obviously, uh, from where I sit, and I'm sure from where you sit. But outside of this, which is a clearly a major barrier to advancing awareness of the vaccines within the scope of practices, um, what other barriers have you encountered among the medical community that you would like to see rectified? Well, I just anecdotally, I get phone calls from parents saying, you know, that well, they've taken their 16-year-old in, their 14-year-old in, and they've been told by their health care provider, oh, they don't need this vaccine until they go to college. But the idea with the 11, 12-year-old recommended dose and then the booster dose at age 16 is to make sure they are protected before they leave the house and have those higher risk years. So I think there is not a great uptake of the booster dose. I think about 80% of all 11, 12-year-olds are getting that first dose. But of that group, not even 30% are getting the booster dose. So you've got parents thinking their children are protected and they're not. So I would like to see more health care providers pushing the booster dose as well as proactively recommending the Sierra Group B vaccination. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtzen. I'm with Lynn Bozoff. She's co-founder and president of the National Meningitis Association. We're talking about meningitis education and prevention. So, Lynn, getting back to what you just said, this remarkable disparity between getting the first shot and getting the boosters, it sounds like there might be a knowledge gap, not just within the public sphere, but within the medical professional sphere, as far as really being able to impart awareness towards getting a booster. Um, in your experience, have you found the medical community to sort of come up short when it, when it involves the awareness around these vaccines and the boosters? I think the information has not slowed down that this booster dose is needed. I also think because this is a rare disease, so many physicians, thank goodness, have never seen a case. 
so they don't realize how quickly this can kill. I mean, it really can take a healthy person and kill them within hours. You know, when I go to medical meetings, there are always older doctors that will get this faraway look in their eyes. They've seen this case. They've seen meningitis. They know what it can do, and they'll never forget it. But then you've got the younger group of doctors who, you know, fortunately, they're not near as many vaccine-preventable diseases and cases as there used to be. So I think there is not an awareness of how devastating this can be. You know, Lynn, there's a common sentiment in medicine that you see one, do one, teach one. And in the case of something like meningitis, where a number of the younger physicians, to your point, haven't seen it, then that train of teaching kind of uh, gets stopped short. The idea that they haven't seen it, therefore they can't truly be aware. But clearly that that is false rationale, is false thinking or logic when it comes to being able to be on top of something that can, as you say, uh, kill in, in minutes to hours. So my question to you is, if we're addressing the younger population of medical professionals and clinicians, what would you advise for them to become more adept at addressing the dangers of meningitis with their patients not having seen it themselves? I would recommend that they go to our website, watch our advocate videos, listen to the moms who've lost children, listen to the survivors who are now dealing with lifelong effects from the disease, and pay attention to the CDC recommendations. Because I've been going to these CDC meetings, the, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, and I know how carefully they deliberate on vaccine recommendations and that they wouldn't be recommending this booster dose if they didn't feel it was absolutely necessary that the effectiveness of the 11, 12-year-old dose would have worn off within those few years. So, you know, I just, to think how they would feel if it was their child who came down with a vaccine-preventable disease, how they would feel. I mean, I can't begin to describe how my husband and I felt when we found out a simple vaccine could have saved his life. And we didn't know about it. We weren't given the opportunity to make a choice. And it's very hard to live with that. I really feel most physicians want to do the right thing. My younger son is now a doctor. Both my sons wanted to be doctors together and practice. My son practices internal medicine. But anyone in that age group that sees him gets vaccinated because he has seen firsthand what this disease can do, and he's not going to let it happen to any other family if he can help it. And, Lynn, you had mentioned the utility of being able to uh, visit NMA's website, uh, looking into the resources. Uh, For those who haven't seen it directly, they can see the effects, the impact, uh, the wake of devastation it leaves. Can you refer our listeners to some of the resources uh, where they can go to find out more about this through, for instance, the NMA? Yes, our website is nmaus.org. We've got many materials that can be downloaded, brochures, posters. 
but we also have an incredibly impactful suite of videos that are also on YouTube of our parents, our dads, our survivors. And they tell such a story that I think if anyone is watching these videos, they will make sure their children are vaccinated. Well, with that, I do want to thank my guest, Lynn Bozoff. She's co-founder and president of the National Meningitis Association. We've been talking all about uh, meningitis education prevention, the experiences that you want to hear, you want to learn more about uh, for those clinicians listening who have not experienced this firsthand. This is important information, and I'm so happy that you were able to join us, Lynn, and help impart that for our listening audience. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity. This has been Production of ReachMD. To access this and other interviews, share your thoughts, of course, and check out our mobile app. Join us at ReachMD.com. And thanks so much for listening.